Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Mitten Politics, where change is political. I'm your host, Ian Duncanson, and I am going to be talking today with one of my very best friends, Glenn Haslerud, and we're going to talk about the student debt situation, some of the factors that are causing it, some of the potential remedies for it, um, and the fact that education is a human right, not a privilege, or at least it should be. So uh, I, I'll leave this intro pretty short because the episode is relatively long, lots to get through. Um, so let's go ahead and dive in. All right, I'm here today with Glenn Haslerud to talk about student loans, everything from uh, forgiveness and why college is so expensive, uh, the effects of debt repayment, and a lot more. So thank you so much for joining me tonight, Glenn. I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so for uh, the listeners, so Glenn is one of my best friends and actually lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I'm super excited to have my first out-of-state guest. So you'll have to forgive us for the inevitable references to many of the shows that we listen to uh, and watch and talk about um, <laughs> because they will inevitably permeate our conversation tonight. So, Yes, uh, I, I completely agree with that. So fair <laughs> warning. All right. So let's kick it off talking a bit about a few statistics related to student loan debt. So um, I actually, oddly enough, just saw today uh, Representative Ro Khanna in Congress uh, posted a very straightforward summary of some of the student loan and student debt data. Um, so in 1990, the average tuition for a, pu a public college, public four-year university uh, was $3,800 per year. And as of 2020, that has almost tripled to $10,560 a year. Also in 1990, less than 50% of college students actually had to take out any student loans at all. So most students were getting by without having to take on any student debt. Whereas by 2020, uh, an estimated 54% of students had to take out student loans as part of their education experience. Um, and then the last one I wanted to highlight from that same post was that the student, the total student debt in the United States in 1990, which was the year I was born, um, was $24 billion total. Whereas as of 2020, that debt has ballooned to over $1.6 trillion in student loan debt, which is insane. I, that's 30 years um, and to go from 24 billion to 1.6 trillion is just truly outlandish. Yes, um, I completely agree with that. So that was um, pretty stark data in, in kind of highlighting some of the problems. Um, just a couple other things I wanted to mention because obviously you can just look at those, those basic data, but um, as of 2020, there were 44.7 million student borrowers and their average debt was about $37,584 upon graduation. So significant amount of money. And as someone who works in the financial industry, it was particularly stark also to recognize that student debt is currently the second highest consumer debt in the United States. So if you think about consumer debt, that includes things like credit cards, car loans, uh, personal loans, the basic types of debt that you would get um, other than mortgage debt. Mortgage debt is usually a bag all of its own. But when you think about consumer debt, credit card debt has been a crisis for a long time. And we're now at a point where student loans are the second highest consumer debt in the United States, which is, is kind of shocking to me. Um, what, what does me kind of giving you some of those statistics make you feel? Um, yeah, so I have, a, I think, a, I have to say, I have a very unique perspective on, you know, what student loans have looked like in my life. Uh, I won't speak so much to, you know, this, the particulars around my experience, obviously, right now, but it makes me very angry that 
we are at this point where this debt, which is becoming crippling for some people going forward, entering the workforce after their you know tenure at whatever university that they've been at, and they just can't get by. And for me, it's as somebody who has you know put themselves into a public service role and wants to provide you know the best services possible from a government perspective. Um, I think that the Department of Education and the way that our you know financial aid system and student loan result you know of the financial aid system, um, you know I don't think it's very fair. And you know it's my own opinion, obviously, but it's a it's a consistent struggle for so many people out there who don't necessarily have the voice to say how much of a struggle it is and they can't get the relief that they need where they've had their own experiences in their education not match up with what the expectations are afterwards and that's that's my that's my frustration with the whole thing right now yeah and we're going to cover a lot of those topics tonight so thank you for bringing those up um i i'm happy to share that my personal experience uh, was that over the time that I was in college, I ended up having to borrow a total of about $30,000. So relatively close to that, um, that number that was listed for average student debt. Um, I will talk more about this when we talk more, or when we talk about some of the other elements of this, I ended up graduating with just about 20,000, maybe a little, maybe 22,000 because of some steps that I took in college. Um, but even to still graduate with $22,000, given all of the different things that I did to minimize the expenses that I had in college and still ended up with that much debt is, is incredible. I mean, it's, it's frustrating that this is, you know, there's this perception that people who have student debt, oh, it's a bunch of kids who went away to college and they partied the whole time and they got out with this student debt and now they're crying and want the government to fix it. And, and that's just blatantly not the case. While there are a minority of people who might fall into that category, that is not the average college experience or the main reason that people have this debt. Not to mention that student debt is not built by going to the bar. So like the, the, the debt is still coming from school related costs, but we'll touch more on that um, as we go through here. So one of the things I wanted to kick off with in addition to those statistics that we talked about um, was also this assumption that we've built that college is necessary and encouraged and right for everyone. Um, I think everyone should have the option of going to college and should have an affordable option to go to college. But that doesn't mean that everyone necessarily wants to or should go to college based on what it is that they want to do with their life. Um, and one of the big drivers of that has been this increase in job descriptions. When you are job hunting and you're looking for jobs and uh, the description says that required is a bachelor's degree in XYZ. And so they're yep. looking for applicants that have the, at least a bachelor's degree. And I've worked some of these jobs where you get in there, you, you get your foot in the door, you get qualified because you've got that degree. And you realize that the work that is required of you actually has no specialization requiring any kind of degree to be able to function. Is that something that you've experienced or noticed with, with you know, even friends of yours applying for jobs? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I have many people in my, you know, immediate social circle and even in my family that are, you know, they have this unnecessary pressure that they had to go to college and get that degree, whatever it was. It didn't matter what the degree was. I, that, that mentality is still there, I think, too, because of and this talks to your point about, um, uh, or speaks to your point of, you know, specialization in the workforce, right? And specific minimum requirements uh, of attaining a job after college. But when, when you have that pressure on you, uh, from whether, you know, whether it be your parents or grandparents, and they're like, well, I set up this money for you to go to college. Well, great. I mean, I would take that and go. But at the same time, if you don't want to, you shouldn't have to. 
And in my experience entering the workforce when I was done with school, most of the work I was doing is, you know, it's fairly straightforward. You were able to, it's data entry, it's, it's you know, running a pivot table on a spreadsheet, um, things that can be taught very efficiently and quickly that I don't think you need a bachelor's degree for, that I don't think you need a master's degree for, which I see in some of these postings too. And that's also very frustrating. Uh, it's frustrating not only for, for me as somebody who's witnessing that happen, uh, you know, as we get applicants for new jobs in, in my work area, but for the people who are, you know, struggling as it is, and they absolutely need a job, and they're they know they're qualified based on what they're seeing in the job description, but there's that mismatch of of the minimum requirements. I would be livid uh, if if I wouldn't, you know, if I hadn't been accepted for or at least gotten an interview for a job like that, if I decided not to go to college. So that's where my head is at on that particular issue. Um, so yeah. Right. And like if you need someone with specialized Excel skills, like you need to be able to work in spreadsheets to do X, Y, Z, like there should even be options where maybe you take a four week long Excel course that gets you the skills that you need that qualifies you for that type of job. So you can have a certification in XYZ that's not going to cost you that $10,500 a year for four years, plus any housing costs and whatever else might you know accrue on top of that, just for a basic skill that could be learned outside of a full four-year degree. Exactly. Um, all right, so another um, part of this about college being necessary, I think um, there is that strong push towards specifically four-year degrees, and we kind of ignore the value of two-year community colleges and trade schools. And um, there's even been predictions that we're going to have shortages of people who are qualified to be auto mechanics and plumbers and electricians because nobody is really advocating for or directing people into those professions or those the education required in maybe trade school for those professions. Um, and as a result, again, we keep kind of corralling people into this pipeline of you got to go to college, you got to get a four year degree, and then you can figure stuff out. Um, and it, I mean, community college and trade schools are far less expensive. And so when you think about the person who gets a four-year degree and ultimately becomes an electrician or a plumber or uh, an auto mechanic, but now they've got four years worth of undergraduate debt that they're stuck with, that's not helping anyone either. I completely agree. I think, you know, in, in hindsight, um, I ended up going to a four-year university, uh, all four years, and it was a uh, great experience. And I, I, Obviously, I, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. However, um, when looking at what the outcome was uh, for my own, you know, student loan situation uh, at the end, part of me really wishes that I did two years at a community college to get my, you know, general studies in and maybe find some specialized classes that are there that could, you know, I found interesting, and then move that into, an, you know, a four-year university where I can finish out my degree there. Um, that is something that I, I, I don't think people talk about enough uh, to try to avoid the debt load uh, that you would end up having graduating after four full years of, what was the average again? It was like- Oh yeah, yeah. The average right now for public universities is $10,560. And that's um, in 2020, right? As of 2020, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really heavy lift for a lot of people who don't necessarily know how to navigate that world either, the financial aid world, especially. Um, and so, you know, when when that opportunity comes up, I and, and somebody like I've got nephews that are about to start college in probably two years. Um, you know, I, I was the first person of my generation of my media family to actually go to college and actually to graduate high school. And um, so I've gone a little bit above and beyond <laughs> from where my siblings are at. But, you know, I'm, I'm guiding, trying to guide my nephews and like, plant this in their ear to say, 
try classes at a, at a cheaper college, you know, go to that community one in town. Um, and then, you know, kind of really explore your passion and figure out what you really want to do and then translate that and move into whatever university that works for you and has that program uh, instead of just rushing into the university and accruing all of this debt. Um, where I, you know, I do find value in going to a four-year institution for the full four years. Uh, however, you know, if, if money's on the mind, that is a perfectly suitable option, uh, you know, to, to reduce that debt load when you're, you know, about to, when you're done graduating. Yeah, done and my- and Graduated, there we go. <laughs> yeah, my oldest sister did that, uh, went to Oakland Community College before going to Oakland University, and it saved several thousands of dollars and even going to Oakland University, she was actually able to live at home because both of those were local colleges. And so she didn't have all of the housing and room and board costs that also came with going to a four year, um, was able to work the entire time uh, during her college, continuing the job that she had in advance of that. Um, and that, you know, we talk about that number of that 10,560. Well, that's only tuition. And so when you think about room and board costs, which are continuing to inflate as well, um, and then just general living expenses that you might have outside of that, that housing, room and board, and your tuition, there's other general, you know, getting a, an occasional meal out or doing things with your friends and literally living. And all of that adds up to a lot more when you're in that environment where you're living away from home. And so the fact that the cost of room and board and tuition are so high really just blows it out of the water when you think about the total cost to, to go to a four-year like that. Um, I, think, I think that that's definitely something that, um, you know, people overlook when they're looking for schools too. You know, they see tuition is this, great. I can afford $10,000 a year with all the financial aid that I was approved for. But if your university is nowhere near your house, if you're, or college, um, you, d you have to think about life uh, aside from studies. And that is missed a lot of the time, which ends up, uh, you know, adding to your debt in the long run, because it's very unlikely that, uh, you know, if you're in a dorm at a university and the monthly payment averaged out is like $800 a month for your little shoebox that you're living in, like that, that, you don't see that itemized on a month to month basis. It's a lump sum per semester. And then you're like, oh yeah, I can just pull a loan. I don't have to pay it back for four years. And the mentality sets in. Um, and I'm speaking personally at this point. So <laughs> that's just something to keep no, in mind. No, but that's, that's um, very true. The, the amount of money you're borrowing kind of becomes abstract. Yeah, and then you have to add in, you know, if you're in the dorm, summer universities require you to get a meal plan uh, for the first year at least until you find off-campus housing. Um, some universities don't have those limitations. So it's, it's, it's nice to know what you're doing when you're trying to navigate, you know, at a time where you're going to go to school and what the situation really is going to look like. So one of the other things when you talk about the amount of debt that people are taking out is also the very low pay that people are getting once they do get these jobs, they get these entry-level jobs, um, and they're barely making enough to pay for, you know, to even have a one-bedroom apartment, to be able to live on their own, to be able to pay their bills, um, and then also they have to be able to pay these student loans in a job that was supposedly set for college graduates. And I think that that's one of the, the biggest challenges. Um, I know I definitely experienced this when I graduated. Uh, I got my first job, was expecting nearly double the salary that I ended up actually starting with. Um, and was kind of shocked to find out that that was not uncommon for entry level jobs with college degrees. And we've spent, you know, you uh, also a millennial have probably also spent, spent your life growing up with games like the game of life um, that taught us that, you know, the lowest paying jobs were like $30,000, $40,000 a year. And that has not been the case. Um, no, it absolutely hasn't. I remember vividly uh, leading up to my graduation, I was in a, a paid internship. I was really lucky to get one. Uh, I also had to have an internship in order to graduate, which is kind of odd, but it was the, my degree requirement. And uh, I couldn't 
land an actual full-time position, benefit earning full-time position for almost two years after I graduated. I was an intern. It felt like in perpetuity. It, it wouldn't end. And the pay, you know, it was above minimum wage. I will say that. But honestly, minimum wage is meaningless at this point when it comes to, uh, you know, even if anything's above minimum wage, we have a standard at this point where, you know, there's a livable wage at this point, right? So there's a difference between minimum, livable, and comfortable. And I don't think anybody's getting a comfortable uh, salary straight out of college unless, you know, they went to school for business and they landed at some firm, New York Stock Exchange or something like that. But uh, that is very rare. Uh, for a lot of people who go in, and for me, like who went into public service, um, there are budget constraints, positions are, you know, money, every penny is monitored in and out. Obviously it's taxpayer money mostly. Um, and what's really frustrating is the, the just constant, but you know, never ending wait to actually land that benefit earning position. It took, like I said, two years and almost two years. Um, and I don't, you know, in hindsight at this point, I don't know how I lived. I don't know how I was able to enjoy a social life, pay my rent and pay all the rest of the bills that I had to pay. Uh, right. Well, and a lot of people end up, you end up having to take on multiple roommates. Sometimes I at yeah. one point had three roommates um, while working my full-time job. And then also a lot of times you get people who end up taking jobs that they don't really want simply because they need a certain income to be able to survive. And sometimes exactly. that hijacks people's career trajectory because they end up in a job just because they need something and they can't get something in their field or the field that they spent four years studying and getting indebted over is only going to pay them 15 grand a year. And yes, folks, 15 grand a year is the current federal minimum wage, $15,000 a year. That's Can it. you live on that? Cause I sure couldn't. Yeah, no, uh, not, not, not in my current lifestyle. And, you know, even back then, I think even as an intern making above the minimum wage, which was generous of them, uh, I think I was making just slightly above $15,000 a year. So again, in hindsight, it's been years, I still don't know how I was making it by. <laughs> and, and to me, it just, it blows my mind that there are still people in that position when, you know, we have so much wealth in this country and, pay is so unfair and there are so many inequities in the way that there are hi the hiring practices and and who gets the job and who doesn't and the selectiveness that is just i think it really needs we need to do a top-down reevaluation of of labor and understanding labor but but not only that in order to get to that labor to to attain that job this goes back to your talking point of you know having to go to school why is that a minimum requirement um yeah, so we're, we're talking about all these, these loans and how uh, tuition cost has exploded. Um, what, what reasoning do you think, um, or to your knowledge, is behind why it's currently so expensive to go to college? Like why, why is it, why has the cost ballooned so much? So I'm gonna put a disclaimer on this and just let everybody know that one, I'm not an expert in uh, economy. I'm not an economist and I'm not an expert in how universities work. So what I will say is that we have disparities in our, um, in the way our money over time and our, our economy inflates. And when we have these massive amounts of inflation, but wages don't grow with it, then we have just this never ending cycle of consistent disparities and it, it won't end until it's blatantly addressed. Uh, and, you know, forgiveness is, is one of these ideas that's being floated around for, for a lot of students out there. Um, the other thing is that administrative fees that, you know, feed into these universities and colleges, uh, they're adding up a lot faster than I would have thought. I, I find it interesting <clears throat> that presidents of, of universities are making, I mean, some universities, it's over millions of millions of dollars. Some it's in the, you know, several hundred thousands. And, you know, yeah, they have a lot of responsibility and they oversee, you know, the 
student populace of ranging from you know 20 10 to 20 to 30,000 plus people undergrad uh, however that's a lot of money going to one person and Absolutely. not not only that you've got a lot of money feeding into the people who are trying to run the institution and that i think is that cycle of we have to pay all these people to make the university be a thing uh, and and to be able to provide the services to the people paying however when the workforce you know that you're when you're expecting that job after you've graduated your wages aren't keeping up with it and you know even before then um thinking about just the administrative costs and all of the added costs that we were talking about earlier you know, not just tuition but housing food uh you know making ends meet and still being able to enjoy yourself um you shouldn't have to take out loans to live and i i think that that's where our inequities are right yeah, and I think so. I, I definitely agree because, you know, wages have not kept up with inflation, but then there are also like the cost of education has actually exceeded the rate of inflation in terms of how how much that cost has grown. And a couple of factors that I'm very familiar with. Um, I grew up in a family of teachers, by the way, parents, teachers, uh, my step parent was a teacher. Um, or was a counselor at a school. Um, one of my sisters is a K-12 teacher. My grandparents were K-12 teachers. So a lot of experience in K-12, but in education in general, um, one of the big things that's happened is that state, local, and federal funding for higher education has consistently been cut over time as well. So the cost, when you talk about the cost of tuition is, also impacted by how much funding is received. And so, you know, if a university receives additional funding from the state, they don't have to charge as much intuition to begin with. On top of that, there's, and, and, you know, I was reading an article in the Atlantic that shows that over the past 30 years, it's been a consistent cut in, in funding, government funding for education. And that actually was exacerbated after the 2008 recession. Um, education was one of the first things to go in terms of cuts. But then- it's really, oh, go yeah, ahead, go sorry. Ahead. Oh, I was just gonna chime in there because it, it's really interesting that you say that. And this is touching on another topic that's a bit more political, I would say, is that we now see that kind of happening in our society. We have a you know an educated populace that tends to gravitate towards urban spaces and or suburban. Um, and then you have, and I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody who lives in the country is not educated, obviously putting a very firm disclaimer on that, but uh, less educated people, uh, you know, just a, college, just a high school degree or not a high school degree or GED, um, they tend to vote more conservative, but we're looking at you know, conservative politics and their policies are to, you know, deregulate, save money, let's be fiscally conservative. But they're pulling that money from, I think, the wrong places. And education is the last place that we should be pulling money from. We need to, I think, seriously reinvest in our education system um, in ways that we've never seen before in order to make up for this difference here and offset those tuition inflation costs that you know, need to be subsidized because yes, the people who are working at these universities, the faculty, as well as the administrative staff need to get paid. However, uh, you know, there's this crossroads of, you know, how do we reinvest without pissing people off and getting taxed way more? And well, and some of this though is the, and we'll talk more about like, um, like loan forgiveness and that kind of other backend side of it um, later. But first of all, I just want to call you out for bringing, turning things political. Oh, no. Not on my political <laughs> podcast, okay? Um, not on my show. Uh, so, yeah, I, and I, I, a lot of the conservative mindset, though, and I see this even when it comes to K-12 education, is either I don't have kids, so why am I paying for public education? or my kids are already graduated from school. So why should I be paying for my local schools? You know, I don't drive on such and such road. Why should I be subsidizing infrastructure spending? And that's kind of like a backdrop of anything is like what's in it for me versus this idea of the common good. 
which if you look at the countries with the best education systems nationally, their, their residents don't pay for education. It's all government subsidized. And the understanding is that anyone who wants an education can get an education. Not everyone needs to get an education because there are quality high paying jobs that don't require higher education beyond K-12. And also the understanding that providing education for those in our population is actually an investment in our economy. And so you end up with people that are more highly skilled, that are more qualified, that are ready to hit the ground running and start careers with the skill sets they need and also contribute to the economy by paying, you know, paying into it, by buying a new car, by buying a house, by, you know, not starting out their adult life and their professional life with their hands tied behind their back. And I think that that's just, you know, that's, that's something that we seem to be lacking. And that's one of the, the leading reasons when, in terms of mindset behind why we've just cut, 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 cut education. Um, and then one more thing I just wanted to mention real quick about why it's so expensive. Um, I think there's also an overemphasis in college sports and the argument is frequently made that college sports raise the profile of a university which attracts more students and boosts enrollment, therefore paying for itself. And the truth of the matter is if we had a public funded higher education system, people wouldn't need marketing materials and a football team in order to decide which school was the right for them. And on top of that, it's the, the very same people who are not willing to pay money for education are perfectly fine being sports boosters and donors to sports and athletic programs that rake in billions of dollars, billions of dollars that goes into building these huge sports arenas and stadiums and they're fine paying for that sports team at a university, but not paying for the students at the university, which I would argue the entire purpose of a college or university is actually education. Right. <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, you're also talking to somebody who never went to their university's uh, college football games, not a single one. Uh, because one, I, I'm not a huge fan of sports ball. It's not really my thing. Um, however, I do understand, you know, in the American education system that, um, and, and this is going to touch on some, you know, more equity and more sensitive, like racial, uh, you know, connotations, but I think it's really important to know that there is value in it, in its current form that athletics at universities do act as a pipeline. For yeah, and don't get me color. wrong. I went to every single football game while I was <laughs> so I'm not saying that the, that the sports shouldn't be involved. I was just highlighting that point. But please, yeah, continue. I I know, and I and I, I agree with you. I mean, like there there's a place for athletics, absolutely, in our university system. Um, do the coaches need to make as much money as they do? I don't know. Do uh, we need to? Uh, you know, do, do the teams need, need to be composed primarily and almost exclusively at some universities of people of color and that's their only way to get into the university? I don't think so. Um, and that's why when you were talking about a, you know, government subsidized, completely government subsidized education system, those barriers don't exist anymore. It's really a matter of your performance while you're in high school. And in depending on the criteria of that, you know, government subsidized education system, you don't need to worry so much about your grades. You don't need to have that 4.0 to get into the university you want to get into. Um, you know, it, obviously it's the university's discretion in the world we live in today, but there's so many barriers for, for people. And, you know, when one, when athletics, as you mentioned, is, is uh, that, you know, that one pipeline for, for me, I'm not, not me literally, but like for some of these kids out there who are, you know, they grew up poor, they, they, they see that athletics is their gateway to get into college. And then they don't, they find themselves focused solely on athletics and not so much on their education. That's something that I think also needs to be addressed going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, universities that do have those sports teams do find that more 
of the students tend to be more in that kind of party mindset, like we're just here for the fun of it, which absolutely college was a blast. However, you are there for the purpose of that education. You're paying thousands of dollars for that education. And like that needs to be, we need to shift our education system to reprioritize, specifically our higher education system to reprioritize the focus on the education that you're there to get um, with sports being kind of an added supplement rather exactly. than like the, the thing that draws you somewhere. Um, I'd like to, I was going to add one last thing on that. It, it, I almost want to equate it to the way we live in our own society. You know, we have our sports teams that are, um, you know, we publicly fund their stadiums here and there and all that fun stuff. Uh, it shouldn't need to be, you know, a requirement to attend or go to or pay stadium fees in your tuition. Like, I don't think that that's right. necessary. <laughs> I think that I think we can address, we as a society should address those issues for sure. Sure, and I, I've seen universe, some universities argue that none of your tuition goes towards sports costs, um, but it's, it's really not true. Um, there's not a line item on your tuition bill for sports, but that is a factored in cost of that university's tuition when they determine their tuition rates. So exactly. uh, it is paid for by everyone who there. Um, so let's touch a little bit on financial aid eligibility as well. Um, so we talked about why it's so expensive. There are, you know, you can fill out the FAFSA and that's the most common way that people apply for financial aid. You can qualify for different types of grants and scholarships from the university. Um, most principally, you end up getting student loan offers through FAFSA. Um, and I know you have a little bit of experience in, in, with that uh, kind of process that you wanted to talk about. So um, I'll let you kind of dive in a little bit on, on this financial aid topic. Yeah. Um, so for anybody who's potentially listening to this and is thinking about college and haven't done it yet. Um, it is extremely intimidating. And I, I, I will agree with you if you're feeling that way right now. For those who've been through it, um, you made it through and you're listening to this in the, at the end of it, I'm assuming. Or I have had children who are in it or oh, getting ready to go into it as well. It, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I have a fairly unique experience with this because when I was, um, you know, thinking about college and where I wanted to go and being told, you know, you got to fill out the FAFSA, that's, that's a requirement. And I had no idea what that was. Um, but having done it, uh, I was really lucky uh, because when I filled it out, I was a foster kid. And when you're in foster care, there's basically this one question, I think it's question 13 on one page, um, you say, have you been in foster care? And it takes you to the end and says you got the whole thing. So I'm not going to say that that's going to happen for everybody because it's rare for people to be in, po in foster care in general. But uh, I, will, I will advise anybody who's maybe experiencing something similar or has experienced something similar, maybe they can relate to this is that the Pell Grant today, you know, 5,000, I think it's somewhere closer to 6,000 at this point, that's 60% of the average tuition across the country. So there's still a 40% gap for just tuition that you have to make up. And people in my situation, uh, in order to live, because not only are you cut off from any type of parental support uh, once you turn 18 and you're in the foster care system, but you, you're on your own. And I think I have a, you know, this experience being very unique. Um, it was a challenge because not only did I have to figure out my own living situation, um, you know, I was taking out loans to, to live. I took them out to eat. I took them out to also, you know, splurge a little bit so I could see people and travel a little bit. And I was like, you know what, this is going to be worth it. And part of me is like, I don't really wish I didn't do that. <laughs> I could have saved a lot of money um, and, you know, not thrown it towards a couple flights here and there to go, you know, on a spring break and, and using loan money that I knew I'd have to pay back in the long run. Sure. Um, but, you know, it, it's also really interesting because I, I have a couple of friends and um, really close people in my, in my, not immediate family, but the people I know, you know, they grew up well off. Their, their parents made, you know, 
100,000 plus a year. There's this really weird breakdown of when you when you meet a certain criteria or you, you make that bare minimum where you don't qualify for the FAFSA or for the Pell Grant, sorry, anymore, um, that that money needs to come from your family to make up the difference. And sometimes that liquid cash is not there and you're stuck between a rock and a hard place of do I go to school or do I take out everything in loans? And so there are so many different scenarios based on your family's income and what, what income you're filing when you're filling out the FAFSA. And so that's uh, that's just something to be mindful of for you know, future students and for yeah. people who've been through it. It's I think they recognize the challenge that that is there. Sure, and I mean, some some people I know and I knew when I was in school, um, their parents qualified or their parents disqualified them for certain levels of aid based on their parental income, but their parents were either not a part of their life or unwilling to actually provide any financial support whatsoever. And so they basically were disqualified from financial aid based on their parents who they were no longer dependent on because the parents wouldn't even provide anything. And that can get tricky sometimes as well. I sometimes wonder if the availability of student loans offered in financial aid has also allowed for some of the tuition increase and the expense increase, knowing that the money can come from somewhere. And right. so we have the opportunity to raise prices and add these new things and raise our costs because, well, people can just get financial aid and expand the amount that they're gonna um, you know, get. Um, but one of the, the last things I really wanted to touch on with financial aid, um, then we can talk a little bit about debt repayment specifically, um, is also how confusing financial aid can be. Um, and as a financial educator, I do a lot of presentations about uh, budgeting and credit and things like that with high school students and college students. Um, one of the presentations I developed is specifically on student loans. And one of the, the most common things that I hear when talking with college students, talking with high school graduating seniors, et cetera, is a lack of understanding about what a financial aid offer really means. Because a lot of times those offers come through and they say, hey, you've qualified for uh, $25,000 of financial aid for this upcoming year. Students thinking, great, that's so exciting. but it's not until you get to maybe page two or three that it's actually breaking down that you got a, uh, you know, a $1,000 per semester uh, Pell Grant portion, and you got maybe, you know, a $500 state assistance grant, and the rest is student loans. Yep. And so like, it, it gets very confusing for people because they think, no, I got this financial aid. Like this is financial aid is the money that pays for this. And then I have to worry about loans for the difference. And it's actually gotten so convoluted that a lot of times those offers lump it all together. And so anybody who is, you know, in the middle of this, getting ready to go to college uh, has family who's preparing to go to school it's really important to thoroughly evaluate those financial aid offers to really understand what is it that's being offered and what is the what are the ramifications of the things that I choose to accept. Um, yeah, and you um, again uh, sum th summarize that very well. I mean, everything's in fine print with financial aid, and financial aid sounds really appealing until you realize that the bulk of it is loans in the long run. And it's aid that's aid there that that's there for you, but you you have to remember that you got to pay it back. <laughs> so right. how do we do that? So um, I want to talk a little bit. I'm trying to be a little bit conscious of time because I know number one, you and I can talk for we can talk forever, uh, forever. <laughs> uh, but also this topic just has so many layers. I finally. Uh, for the part, for, not for the first time, uh, it's my second in the last week, uh, the other one got rejected, put in an offer on a house. And I would have loved to, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, fingers crossed, uh, it's a good one, I really like it. So we'll see what happens. But uh, delayed home purchase is something that this generation is sorely impacted by. And it, it's, 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 it's really bad. I mean, like it, I'm looking from the perspective of my parents and. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here for a moment because 
my, my foster parents, actually. These are the, um, the two that took care of me in my later teen years. They're like, why don't, why don't you guys have a house yet? Um, is this, we, we want you to you know, be able to host dinners, not in your rental. And, uh, you know, picking on these things that we can't get because there's just, there's that barrier of like, have all this debt. And I also want to reiterate too, that when you're trying to get by as a student on student loans and just to, just to pay for your college costs and maybe, you know, some slush here and there, those credit card offers are very enticing. And so not only- They're designed. They're designed to be that way. Absolutely. And um, I was one of the idiots out there that took out three credit cards. And by the time I graduated, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I have to pay these back too, and so uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, you know, um, I think after <laughs> the year we just had in twenty twenty, I think we have to ban that phrase permanently from our lexicon. You know Let's You're say right. like hindsight <laughs> is, um, I don't know, a box of chocolates. <laughs> um, that might take some adjusting and getting used to, but. Uh, I can, I can humor that for a minute and <laughs> see how it goes. But yeah, I mean, um, my, my foster parents and, and, and my biological parents, I mean, they bought houses in their 20s. And I'm almost 30. <laughs> and I'm finally at that point where I'm like, I have just enough to make it. I, and and the, those barriers that are there in in the way that we, our economy is right now, in the way that people are paid and all these different expenses that add up in our lives uh, that you don't think about, but you sometimes need to take out to get by like loans and credit cards and whatnot. Um, they really do impact you down the road. And- yeah, there's that opportunity cost. And I mean, we can talk about home buying and the expense of home buying in a whole episode to itself. But, um, you know, having a three, four, five hundred $500 a month student loan payment is a real tangible opportunity cost in terms of that's four or $500 that I cannot spend on a mortgage payment that I cannot add to savings for a down payment. And I've got to be paying these for 10 years for 10 years, I'm going to be held back by this debt. It's just that the impact is, is un- very unfortunate and it's very real. Yeah. Uh, completely, completely agree. Cause I'm living it still, you know, um, I think I've got, I want to say I've got like four years left on my student loans. I think it's been six years since I graduated from my, from high school, college. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, I'm looking forward to them being gone, but also it's been really nice in 2020. Uh, to not pay them. I've been able to like put them off to the side and actually throw some money towards savings and, 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 and focus on those goals of buying a house. And um, I'm just kind of letting them sit there because they're going to be okay. And, you know, I'm not worried about the student or the, the you know, government getting all of my money through my loans that I, I took out. They'll, they'll figure it out without me for the time being, but they will eventually be paid back <laughs> once these yeah. moratoriums are Well, lifted. and the reality is with you moving closer to spending that money to buy a house, like the, that's taking steps towards recontributing to the economy as well, which is, you know, when we talk about student loan pauses, student loan forgiveness, et cetera, there is a payoff for that in terms of the long game of what people are then freed up to do without that responsibility. But exactly. we'll, we'll, we'll get to forgiveness next. There's just a couple other things I wanted to quickly touch on in terms of the effects of this, this debt um, is that it really creates a, stratis- a stratification of um, economic class. Um, so you get people that some people graduate and their parents or their guardians, their family have money, intergenerational wealth, is what that's called, um, where they can help you pay off your student loans, or they can help you with a down payment on that house. They can help you buy a car. They'll pay your cell phone bill or your insurance for a while. Most people don't have that. I mean, I, I came from a privileged middle-class family that had the ability to help me in the cases of emergencies. But I was, from the time I turned 14 on my own, when it came to, um, you know, buying a house or buying a car or even renting an apartment, obviously I haven't bought a house yet. Um, that's been something that's been on, on me and I don't 
have parents who are sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars of of wealth that they themselves maybe even inherited that they can just throw money at anything that it is that I have. Um, again, I acknowledge the privilege I do have and the help that I have received in places. So I, I'm not at the lower end of this stratification of classes, but this assumption that your family will help you after you graduate is I think ill-informed and doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. You talked about um, being, you know, on your own when you turned 18 out of the foster system. And, and there are people, you know, who their family is at home somewhere still trying to put food on the table for the other kids that aren't just graduating from college. And so that's something that, uh, you know, when, whenever you talk about class, there's a strong racial disparity on top of that, that grossly affects people of color. Um, and, and so I think this issue at large, uh, when you think about debt repayment, even more dramatically impacts uh, lower class individuals, you know, people of lower economic classes. I, I wanna clarify that, at lower economic classes, um, but also people in certain racial groups are disproportionately affected by this. And then on top of that, a, a piece that integrates with all of that is the, just the sheer number of students that are going into uh, loan default. And with the CARES Act, that was kind of, we were able to put a pause on that and bring everyone to a place where no payments are currently due until they're due again. Um, but the number of students that were going into loan default before that was enacted, when the economy was quote unquote, the best economy that this country's ever had, <laughs> was, it was a, a significant number of people that were going to that loan default. And not only does that affect, you know, people calling them saying, hey, you got to make these payments, but it also affects their credit and their ability to get loans for a car or to buy a house or, um, you know, in some cases, even get into apartments or get into places that require credit. Your car insurance ends up being more expensive. I, and I could go on about the effects of, of credit scores, given that that's one of the subjects I teach. Um, but it, it just, you know, that underlies this whole situation. And it's really um, shocking how we're allowing this to just occur without some sort of uh, federal response to fix this, this very broken system. Yeah, I, I, I'm right there with you. Uh, I, I think what's been very refreshing, and um, I'll say this, you know, it's, it's after inauguration. Uh, <laughs> yay. <laughs> things, are, right. things are on the up and up, I think, I hope, uh, for right now. But uh, I keep hearing from White House staffers from, not personally, obviously, through the media, um, the word equity is, is being talked about not at a local or county or statewide level now. I, it's, I think it's the first time I've ever heard it from the White House in my life. And when I talk about equity, it's a very broad term, obviously, but hearing it alone is a symbol that things are changing. And I'm truly hopeful that that is the case. But we truly do live in a society where there are two very different Americas right now one that works for people and one that absolutely does not work for people. Most of which were brought on by systemic barriers that were put in place intentionally to prevent people from succeeding. And it's a very sensitive topic, obviously, because there are so many different groups that are impacted by these you know, policies that could either be active today or have been deemed unconstitutional. But those, those barriers still exist and uh, without getting into the details too much, I just I just want to reiterate that for anybody who's feeling like it's a complete wash and nothing is going to work for them in the long run, give it your all. Keep working. It's going to be okay. And you yeah, have we, allies coming out. We all need to fight for it. I think the last, the, just since you mentioned equity, I like to just mention because I think sometimes people struggle to differentiate between the ideas of equality and equity. And so equality is the idea that, um, well, it, it starts from a foundation 
that assumes everyone is beginning from the same rung of the ladder. So equality is everyone can do the same thing today, however they want to do it. Equality, you know, if I want to go get a job, if you want to go get a job, we're equal in the sense that we can both go apply for the job, right? But equity acknowledges that not everyone starts from the same point. And so equity takes into account, like I was talking about intergenerational wealth, equity takes into account that, you know, if I grew up in a, uh, a white household, with white privilege in a middle-class neighborhood with middle-class privilege as a man with male privilege, that I'm starting at a different point in any decisions that I make from the time I'm born until the time, you know, the school I get to go to, the people that I interact with, the, the college educated parents that I was raised by, et cetera, all the way on up, is not to say that I didn't work hard to get where I'm at, but it acknowledges that a person of color in a low income household in a uh, neighborhood that is uh, you know, not viewed as favor favorably because of certain racial undertones, uh, racist undertones, um, is not starting at the same point as everyone else. They, you know, if somebody has intergenerational wealth and their their family passes on, you know, a trust fund to the kid, they're going to be at a different starting point than someone who's starting with literally nothing. Um, you know, I have friends of mine who they themselves in their 20s and 30s already have more net worth built up from their careers and their whatever than their parents have ever had. And so that, that point of equity really um, is important that we're acknowledging that equality is not enough. Equity is what we need to strive for. Yeah, and I wanted to add one last thing on that. I, I think a really, really simple way of, of summing that up is, and, and it's always assumed that the goalpost is moved when talking about equity. It's not, it's the starting line. It's making sure right. that the people who have been historically disadvantaged, whether it was hundreds of years ago or 50 years ago or less, um, have that fairness built into their starting point. Absolutely. I like that. All right. Um, our last major topic um, is just, I want to talk briefly about forgiveness. Um, there are some proposals out there. I know Biden has talked about wanting to forgive $10,000 for um, student borrowers. Um, has talked about wanting to make uh, public colleges and universities, at least community college um, and below tuition free and perhaps advance some, uh, some adjustments to the way that we look at four years. Um, there's been public loan forgiveness programs that uh, we won't really have time to go too deep into just given the, the quantity of content that we have to cover tonight. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a number of different forgiveness things that were instituted in the past, uh, some of them sab sabotaged by Betsy DeVos, um, and then there's talks about what we can do moving forward. And one of the things that I just like to acknowledge in this is, number one, I believe that higher education should be tuition-free. It should be accessible for every person in the United States. Um, to go to college if they so desire and it fits with their, their career path. Um, and I also think that the student loan debt uh, that we currently experience is outrageous. Yeah, um, and you, you touch on really good points there uh, in general about forgiveness. And I think the biggest thing that is um, controversial at this point, like you'd said, is well, I paid all mine off, so why should I pay yours? Because it's my taxpayer money that's going towards it. I think in the long run, people use that as an excuse for so many other things um, and deem it as like socialism, um, which of course we all remember is a scare word. Uh, it's not really socialism. Um, in fact, from what I've heard from economists is that if, if all student loans were forgiven, the, how much, how many trillions of dollars? One point, one point, over 1.6. Yeah, $1.6 trillion of money was just kind of was wiped away. Let's just picture that. Um, the economy would 
have just the, the biggest uproar that it's ever had in a good way uh, in a very long time. And it would remove so many of those barriers for people who are in situations like mine where I still have a balance on my student loans. And I don't need to worry about a several hundred dollar payment every month going towards debt that I've accrued. And I'm also of the mindset too, and maybe this is just me and my upbringing and, and where I live, but I would say that I don't care if, uh, if you have a balance on your student loans and I paid mine off or vice versa. You know, it, it doesn't matter to me if you still have a balance and I did what I had to do to get it paid off because ultimately we are a part of a society that is extremely dysfunctional right now and really needs to realign itself. And money isn't the be all end all of, of life. I, I think that a lot of people focus too much on the economy and not, not so much on the humanity that, that we all Absolutely. share and have something in common with. And so if it's going to help somebody, anybody, call me and tell me I'm in favor. Like <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's get it all forgiven. I, I saw Chuck Schumer tweet earlier today and he was like, student loan forgiveness, cancel all that. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? The centrist right. moderate Democrat is saying that? I thought that was like a left left talking point, but I think they understand that the benefits are there and you know, that it'll be, it'll ignite the economy even more and provide so much opportunity for more people. And then marry that with the concept of opening up education, making it more accessible, making it not cost you as, as much. I mean, you're still gonna have to pay for living expenses and whatnot. That's part of life. Um, but it removes those barriers. It, and yeah, like blending those two together, I think we're going to be in a much better situation as a whole. As a whole yeah, society. absolutely. You know, we have to fix the, cost system at the same time otherwise we're just basically putting a band-aid um, that will pay back all of these you know universities and all of these places that want their money um, most of them have already gotten their money but it you know it will be a temporary fix um, and then that debt will continue to build by the next generation the people who are still in school etc so we have to look at this and, and fixing the system as a whole um, and starting with some forgiveness is absolutely great, um, but looking, you have to look at the whole system as well. You can't just wipe it out now and, you know, figure that it's all set now. Right, because then your kids or whoever is going to have kids that's of our generation are going to be in the exact same situation we're in right now. <laughs> I don't want that. It's not sustainable. Yeah. All right. The last thing I wanted to leave uh, listeners with is just, uh, uh, I, I kind of wanted to ask your opinion on this, um, is do you believe that education is a right or a privilege? I think it's a right. Um, you know, we can, we can get into the, the nitty gritty of, of what a right is versus a privilege, obviously, but um, I think oh, I will be story. doing an entire episode on privilege. <laughs> oh, <So>. good. <laughs> Can it be a panel? No, I'm <laughs> um, so <laughs> um, a right versus a privilege. So what is it in the Constitution? I'm not a constitutional scholar. I'm not a lawyer, but uh, or maybe it's the Declaration of Independence. I don't know. It's wherever it says life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I equate all of those with three very distinct things. Life is health and healthcare. Liberty is your freedom and your freedom from constantly being harassed by law enforcement and living in a police state. And the pursuit of happiness is to educate yourself if you so choose. And a lot of people are not going to take you up on that offer of here's college, have fun if you like, go for it. But I think that anybody who wants to educate themselves further and, and broaden their mind in any way, shape or form has the right in this country to do that. And I can go on about why I feel that way, uh, just based on what I see in my own bubble, um, not my media, but like some of my fringe family was a little, uh, um, a little crazy. Um, <laughs> they could really use some education right now. And I think a lot of their barriers were these costs. So, you know, calling it a right versus a privilege is, um, still debatable after this conversation, obviously. I think there are a lot of people who are going to feel opposite of me, but I do believe it's a right. 
I would agree. I view education as a right as well. Uh, clearly, we have viewed it as a right enough to mandate having K through 12 education. But at, for some reason, we figure that at that senior year in high school level, that's where we could just cut it off. Or you turn 18 and you're no longer guaranteed um, this right to education. Um, also, another reason I feel that education is a right is that it's not a knowledge is not a finite resource. Knowledge, it's not something that there's only so many of that, um, you know, that ed, knowledge is constantly expanding and growing and evolving. And by having people, we should want our people to be as educated as they want to be. We should be making it available to say, you know, we're not going to mandate that everyone go to college as much as conservatives would like to think that liberals just want to like force all of these uh, good things on you, whether you want it or not. Um, no one's going to be required to go to college. No one should be required to go to college, but college should be available and accessible for anyone who wants it, regardless of their race, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their, uh, their family's wealth. There should be no question about whether or not you are able to, as a citizen of the United States or a person living in the United States, period, in my opinion, there should be no question about your ability to educate yourself to the highest level you desire. So. I'm right there with you. <laughs> All right. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, we've covered a lot of stuff. Um, but thank you so much for joining me for this episode and being willing to, to talk through all of these. It's, it's a, a weighty topic that likely will merit a follow-up episode at some point in the future. Well, and, uh, you know, I'm still in quarantine at my house. I have been since March, so I have nothing but time. We can, <laughs> we can do a follow-up if you want. I'd be, I'd be happy to come back. So thank you. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode. Um, I, I would love if anyone who likes this podcast it would share it with someone that you know. I'm trying to continue to grow the audience and the people this reaches. I'm also always open to new topics of interest that people would like covered. I do have an Instagram at mitten underscore politics, a Facebook page at mitten politics, and my email is uh, mittenpolitics at gmail.com. If you ever have questions or things you'd like me to cover, comments, things that you want me to include in a future episode, please send that to me in one of those forms. And we will see you in a couple weeks. Thank you.